Today, the world is demanding more of products and packaging. Consumers want more variety. Governments are demanding sustainability. And supply chains, they're more complex than ever before. Simply put, companies that make things need to respond faster than ever to change. Welcome to Beyond the Shelf, the product and packaging podcast. I'm Laura Fodi, and I'll be your host. Since I was a kid, I've always been fascinated by how things are made. And at Specrite, I get to work with product and packaging leaders to help them spend less time chasing data and more time making amazing things. We'll interview experts and industry leaders across food and beverage, beauty, consumer goods, and industrials and manufacturing. We're going to go beyond the shelf and get a behind the scenes look into the things you use every day and even the ones you don't. Where do the best ideas come from? How are leaders making sustainability goals a reality? What trends are here to stay and what's just a passing fad? We're going to ask our guests all this and more. So be sure to subscribe and get ready to go beyond the shelf. Hello and welcome to Beyond the Shelf, the product and packaging podcast, where we interview the people behind the amazing products we use every day. I'm Laura Fodi, and today I'm thrilled to be speaking with Thomas Ossip, the R&D director at Reckitt Nutrition. He has experience in the food, nutrition, and medical products industries. And while he got his start in packaging engineering, he's overseen product development, process engineering, regulatory science, nutrition science, pilot plant supervision, and capital project management. There's very little he hasn't seen in terms of bringing products to life. He has a successful record of innovation from concept through commercialization, as evidenced by several first-to-market product and package introductions at industry-leading companies like Abbott and ConAgra. Thomas, welcome to the podcast. Oh, hey, thanks, Laura. I appreciate you inviting me. You have this amazing cross-section of industry experience, and some folks might wonder what food, medical products, and nutrition has in common, um, but I think we'll see a lot of common threads in terms of innovation and the importance of packaging. You've really been at the forefront of some of these major innovations in packaging. How did you get your start? Well, I actually got my start with, with Abbott. Um, I, I had an internship with them when I first, uh, the year before I, or the summer before I got out of school uh, from Michigan State. And uh, when I got out of school, they, they had an opening in the department I had worked in. And so I worked on hospital products. It was uh, IV bags, drug delivery systems, injectables. Um, and, and one of the, the, the key things is sometimes the secondary package was the determination of the shelf life because a primary container uh, couldn't uh, provide the barrier that you needed. And we, we would use uh, overwrapping and, and other techniques to, to uh, make sure that we had one, two, three year shelf lives. That's amazing. I mean, when you think about, you go to the hospital, you get an IV bag. As a patient, you're not thinking about the shelf life of that IV bag, but it's a very real thing. And, and the regulatory you know, standards for the medical industry are, are so tremendously high, even likely, you know, higher than food. What was it like to work on the innovation side in a space that is highly regulated? Well, you, you just got to factor in the timing. So any primary package change, it's, for instance, an IV bag is a NDA. So it's a new drug application. Any changes to, to even polymers or thicknesses or uh, uh, retort processing or, or autoclaving uh, conditions are all uh, fileable things, and, and there's just a certain amount of duration that needs to be tacked onto the to the project. 
Yeah, that's fascinating. It's almost as if it were a change to the product. Um, I'm somewhat familiar with FDA rules and regulations on the on the medical imaging side. Um, okay. and it, it truly is very interesting how you have to go through the process. And obviously, we're all better for it as as consumers, especially in the healthcare space. You have one project that famously took four and a half years uh, in terms of in, in innovation. Can you talk a little bit about what that was and what that process was like? Sure. When you think about the first feedings in hospitals uh, for InfoFormula, so this is my transition from Abbott Hospital Products into the Abbott Nutrition Division. They were interested in my uh, background in plastics and all the little four and eight ounce bottles that were first feedings at the time were glass. And they desperately wanted to get the glass out of the hospitals and, and convert to plastics. The problem was, is there's never, never had been a, a, you know, a screw cap or a continuous thread closure that was uh, able to put it we put onto a plastic bottle and maintain its hermetic seal through the retort process. So I, that was one of the first projects I, I got when I transferred over, I'm in my twenties, uh, probably my, my mid twenties when I started this. And we at one time peaked at 20 different concepts going simultaneously uh, to try to find one that worked. Uh, we, we narrowed it down to a couple uh, the, the one we ended up going with was uh the, the, the patent was held by Anchor Hocking at the time. They're, they're now part of uh, uh, Crown Closures, but they had never done any, they, they had a patent issue, but they never reduced it to practice. And it took us, even from that point, took us over three years to take that and prototype it, refine it. We had to kind of invent a bottle, a molding and trimming process that would be compatible with that closure and then to scale it up from, from bench top to commercialization. That's amazing. And so what's the use case? Is this, there's babies in the hospital and they need their first feeding to come from a formula for, you know, what are the typical reasons that this is an important product in a hospital setting? Well, I mean, for, for some, it, it, particularly for preterm infants, it's really critical. So preterm, the uh, breast milk is, is, is really designed for mature term babies. When you have a premature baby, you've got to actually supplement with higher nutrients and higher caloric density than breast milk. So, the, so some of those products are absolutely life-saving in, in some ways. Uh, the rest could either be by choice, either the, the mom isn't producing enough uh, milk, having a, the baby's having a hard time latching on in breastfeeding. But... You know, we, we, we are strong advocates uh, with my current company, uh, Reckitt, in breastfeeding, but there are times when, when uh, infant formula is, is either desired or needed. Oh, yeah. I'm especially thinking of multiples, too, right, where you oh, might have preterm, you know, triplets or twins and, and there's a need for them to have supplemental nutrition. So that makes a ton of sense. Why was it so important to get glass out of the hospital and, and you know, trans, transition to something like it's plastic? Hand, it's handled like a hazardous waste, like a, like a needle, an injectable. They, they, have, they have to, quote, red bag. So your, your sharps have to be handled completely separately. There is breakage and any cuts and, and things like that. So it was a, it was a strong market desire, but it had uh, never been addressed before. Wow, that's fascinating. And of course, you know, I can't help but think about the sustainability impact of that. Glass is a lot heavier to ship. Um, it's also more breakable, so you potentially have higher damage rates. So, you know, that was probably before it was cool, but there there likely was some kind of element of, of that on the logistics side of benefits of moving to something lighter. Yeah, absolutely. 
Definitely. That's so that's fascinating. Now, infant formula was something that uh, a lot of us heard about recently. You know, I don't have kids, but I heard all about it last year when there was a shortage. Um, can you talk a little bit about what that situation was and, and just, you know, how it was to be on the front lines during that okay. time in this industry? Yeah, well, it was tough even before that, because with COVID, yeah, it, getting commodities in was tough. And then you compound it last year with um, one of the one of the two majors in the industry um, had a, a, a significant recall and a shutdown of a facility for a long time. And so we at Reckitt stepped up as much as we can to fill the void. And, and it included uh, lots of things. It was, uh, it was obviously focused on volume. The, the, uh, it, it wasn't necessarily what the consumer would normally want in, in, a, in a pack format or a pack size or a retailer might want optimally. But our mission was to try to get as many feedings out as humanly possible. So we ran our plants 24 seven. We supplemented it with uh, a program we had with the White House where we were actually flying formula in from Singapore into the U.S. and then finishing and packeting it uh, in, a, in, in one of our domestic plants. So we, we brought, we, we leveraged our worldwide network as best we could. And then this is at significantly higher cost. So it, it, our sales were great last year. Margins were weaker because the, the cost involved with all these extra steps was taking a, quite a bit of a hit to the margin, but it was a heck of a year for us. And, and the, the, the industry did the best they could to make up the gaps. Yeah, I, I think it's amazing because, you know, this story isn't really one that that was ever talked about. You know, there's a lot of innovation that went on in making those decisions. So you talked about uh, larger feedings, you know, and essentially you looked at all the products you had and said, how do we maximize? I, I'm assuming it's the package size with mm-hmm. with the amount of formula. And you looked at the efficiency of your lines Absolutely. and looked. At, so how did you think about that just from an end to end commercialization standpoint? Well, you know, our supply team and our procurement teams really needed to, to minimize changeover. So we, we minimized the number of formulations that we had to make sure that we had what babies needed, but uh, any extreme, you know, any things that weren't absolutely needed, we could uh, temporarily uh, put on hold. But the, the other thing was just really focusing on what gets the most units out and, or the most volume. And, and it was usually our large bags, our large cans, uh, basically, the, the the large pack formats require um, you, you get more ounces out, and you have fewer changeovers. That's amazing. I think um, very few of us understand the scale and the difficulty of which you guys probably did something in a matter of weeks or months that typically would take a lot longer. You know, what allowed you to come together in such a, a quick period of time to address this need in the public? Well, you know, I. I'd like to think most companies act this way when, when there's a crisis, everyone knows it and everyone just is galvanized and, and focused. And, and so I, I think we did a, a, a very, very good job. I'd like to think other companies do too. I mean, sometimes it's, uh, it's not clear, but in this case, it was crystal clear. This was a crisis. This was the number one priority and, and we, we needed to do collectively everything we could. Yeah. I, you know, it's just great to see companies rallying around a cause. And, and I think at times this is when you see the greatest innovation from a challenge. Um, as you guys are, are you know, coming out of that, where do you see innovation in, in infant formula at this time? And what are you guys working on? Well, I mean, I, I can't go into too many details there, but, but obviously we, you know, we pride ourselves on making products that, that make a, a clinical benefit. 
So, so uh, we're always going to strive to find the combination of ingredients that, uh, you know, match as close as we can to the benefits of breast milk. Uh, from a pack size or a pack format, it, it varies around the world. You know, I'd like to think that we could have an iconic Coke bottle, but the but the economic affordability is different around the world. So what what uh, sells maybe in Southeast Asia may not be the exact same thing as in the U.S. So we tend to look at packaging a little more regionally, even though, uh, you know, ide idealistically, I'd love to have a, an iconic package that we sold around the world, but uh, typically we, it varies. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, that's a good segue. I don't meet many people who transition from packaging to the R&D and innovation side. What made you make that switch and how did you do it? You know, it, it, it's interesting. I, it, you know, I, I wasn't sure it was more management coming to me than for me actively looking. So uh, we, we had some pretty good packaging teams uh, at, at Abbott and at ConAgra. Uh, at Abbott, I, I moved into you know, department management and, and some capital project management type things. Uh, when I was at ConAgra, we had an acquisition of, uh, of another food company. And then after that happened, that's when I started picking up some other, uh, I, I was uh, I was involved with the the bringing together the two companies, and then I ended up leading the R and D team for that. While I kept my packaging job in California, I had a Pennsylvania-based uh, multifunctional role, and it just kind of snowballed from there. So I ended up with with lots of different things. And when I left ConAgra, I was not in packaging at all. I was doing all general management and then product development management. Uh, when I moved from ConAgra to Meet Johnson, which is now uh, part of the, the record organization that I'm in, uh, I went in as a, as a director, a global director of packaging, but two years later, because of my background, they asked me to go into kind of a, a general R&D management. And so I ended up starting up a Latin America-based R&D group that included some of the functions that you talked about, packaging, product development, process engineering and nutrition science, regulatory medical affairs for Latin America. Then I did that for several years in North America. And then I went into some upstream uh, global innovation roles. So that's so interesting. I, you know, we've just seen at Specrite just this intersection of products and packaging over the past I would say 10, 20 years where the two are inextricably linked and you're seeing really the importance of packaging really play out in, you know, CPG food where the package is really essentially part of the product. And a lot of the innovation you see is packaging innovation that reflects in product innovation. So examples are, you know, serving sizes, you know, is it single serve? Is it family pack? You know, it's maybe the same product, but just presented to the consumer in a few different ways. Uh, when you were at ConAgra, I believe you looked after some pretty iconic brands. Can you talk about uh, what brands those were and what it was like uh, working on an iconic brand and managing the innovation process? All right. So ConAgra is a huge corporation. Um, the division I was with is called ConAgra Grocery Products, which was uh, all the shelf stable foods, plus anything from uh, Peter Pan, Swiss Miss, Wesson Oil, Hunt's Tomatoes, Healthy Choice Soups, uh, Chef Boyardee, uh, Slim Jims, Orville Redenbacher, um, just, just snack pack puddings, uh, all sorts of things. That's awesome. I mean, it, 
I would imagine though, it, I mean, those are all brands I grew up with as a kid, you know, peanut butter, jelly sandwich, you had Peter Pan. I definitely had the Jell-O snack packs and, and others. What is it like to innovate on a brand that is so important? Because I imagine you're always trying to balance what the consumer is familiar with, with a new trend that you need to kind of tie it to. How do you balance, you know, managing a, a brand that's so established while still bringing it into the future? I mean, th those are, those are tough. I mean, you don't want to, you've got your loyalists. Uh, we had a, uh, a chili brand that, that was dominant in Texas and Oklahoma called Wolf's Chili. And if you're from Texas, everyone eats Wolf's Chili, even though it's not sold nationally. Those, those heavy users are probably eating it four or five times a week. Uh, probably not the healthiest food for you, but, but, but people were loved it. So we had to be extremely careful if we're going to make a change to a package format when you've got a, a core heavy user uh, that dominates the, the the sales of that product. So you, you you obviously have to it has to be affordable, but you also want to look at consumer trends and 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 things like that. The yeah. problem, the the biggest one that was industry changing uh, was when I was working on the Hunts brand with with this inverted ketchup bottle. So we we suspected Heinz was working on it. We started working on it. Uh, we had a press conference out in New York. Um, this is quite a few years ago. And that night after we did that, uh, Heinz hur hurried up and rushed out some. It looked like something scratched on a napkin saying, hey, we're doing this too. And, and basically, it, it was a race. It was a race to see who could get out to market faster. Um, the, you know, and sometimes you win the battle, but you lose the war. And, and in this case, we, we were first to market. But... Heinz is such a dominant brand and for ketchup, it never really shifted significantly the market share that we were hoping, but it did kind of help usher in kind of a, a format that's become iconic now. It's, it's, Kids these days will never understand the struggle of having to turn a glass ketchup yeah. jar upside down and, and like tapping on it until then you get too much. And then, so is that really where that idea came from for the inverted bottle? Because, uh, you know, for any Gen Zers on, on the, listening to the podcast, it used to be, you had a typically glass bottle that was standing upright. You then had a closure and you had to turn it upside down. Can you talk a little bit about what that challenge and insight was that led to the innovation? The, the insight is, and I, and I did attend some consumer research and it's amazing how loyal uh, ketchup, users are and how widely it's used. So in, in during this research, we asked people to bring in their ketchup bottle, whatever's open, bring it to the, the research and show us what you've got. And, and you had, you had glass bottles, you had plastic bottles that weren't inverted. Um, one of the things that, that people like to get the full use of the product and that glass bottle that you talk about, particularly in restaurants, I don't remember, it was, that was, that was the dominant food service uh, restaurant. So every, everyone had that it, you may only have about 3% of the ketchup left in the bottle, but you think it's a lot more than that. So people were, you know, you know, people said they, they were actually adding water, shaking it, and then still using that as ketchup just to try to stretch. It's, it's like squeezing that last bit of toothpaste out of a toothpaste tube. Um, you, you just want, you, you feel like I'm getting ripped off if I can't get it out of there. So if it's, if it's preloaded at the cap, instead of being stuck on the opposite side, when you're trying to squeeze it out, it did, it did help bring some of that product to 
to, to where you're dispensing out of. It's so interesting. You guys use gravity as your friend. Yeah, exactly. Right? exactly. It's, it's, it's interesting. I don't know why more like shampoo companies. It, I feel like this innovation needs to go further into consumer packaged goods than it has. Yeah, I have. Because there's so I many industries like this. But not much yeah. lately. For a while there was a little bit more common. Oh, same thing with like facial lotions. Mm-hmm. I know that feeling of like you're trying to pump it and it's, you, you know, it, it, listen, knowing a little bit about packaging, I'm like, this is the most inefficient way. I'm losing, to your point, as a consumer, I feel like I'm losing oh. out on 20% of the product. It's probably 3%, like you said, it, yeah, but that perception's prob- interesting. Exactly. It, it's probably not as much as you think it is, but it, it's, it's annoying. Yeah, I mean, it's frustrating because you, you want to get your money's worth. You want to get the full value of, of what you buy. Yeah. Now, how long did it take you to to innovate that ketchup bottle? That was probably about a year and a half in, in length. It was kind of a rush project on, on our part. Um, I, you know, we we did consumer research on the, the research I was talking about. Kind of led to the shape that we decided to launch, uh, and then from there it was about a year to get it to build the molds and and we also had to build a production line so it was it was it was about a year and a half in in length can you talk a little bit about that because i think as consumers we all assume how hard could it be to change a ketchup bottle and i think one of the things you've seen in your career is the commercialization process it's not just the design of a package it's molds it's a can you talk a little bit about everything that goes into actually making that product at scale Sure. And, and especially it's it, it's maybe a little bit faster in some ways now and that you can do more computer simulation now that, that you we weren't able to do 20 years ago. Uh, there, there was there was a lot of engineering thought put into it, but you would uh, you, you couldn't really simulate the flow of materials and how they're going to act in, in, in different processes. It was more experience based. You build a unit tool, even a unit tool back then was probably 16 to 20 weeks to build one. And that's just to make a prototype single cavity so that you can injection mold or you can blow mold uh, a, a container. And then you would take it through its paces, you'd make adjustments uh, as needed. And then to make the full commercial set uh, of molds could be another 26, 30 weeks. I, I bet the timing now is probably longer uh, for, for molds just because of supply you know, ever since uh, COVID. I mean, supply chains have been very, very complicated now. And, and you're talking, yeah. you, you're talking probably half million dollars or more for a production mold set these days. Wow. So you really have to think through that packaging change before you go all in, because it is a huge capital expense for the company to invest in the molds, Absolutely. the line and, and everything that goes into it. You, you have to make sure it works. Yep. Yep. You've got to, you've got to try it. You've got to qualify the molds. You've got to qualify it on the manufacturing line. If it's a, if it's a minor change, you can often, often use your, maybe with some modifications, your existing lines. But if it's a completely new design, it's often comes with a, with a brand new manufacturing line. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about the qualification process? Cause I think this is another area that most folks don't know about. So when you have either a, a usually a change or a major introduction, you will actually run you know, a first run, if you will, and, and qualify that. Can you talk a little bit about what that process is like and who's involved? Sure. It, it involves a lot of functions that you may not think about. It's, um, I mean, I go, I go first on the material side. So the material you select needs to be suitable. It needs to be, let's call it food grade. If it was for a ketchup bottle, uh, if it is for something like infant formula, 
which which my, my current uh, company makes a lot of, it is really, really detailed as far as what you need to know, what, what kind of migration could be coming through, what are the acceptable limits for either an infant or a preterm infant. So even if, even if a, a packaging material is grass, it isn't automatically grass for infants. It's a completely separate evaluation uh, and process that you go through with FDA and the Office of Food Additive Safety, uh, which is part of FDA. Um, so, so, so you got to do your material screening, make sure that that's going to be okay. And then you would, you would typically go to a, an engineering design phase. And, and so it's a, I always, I, I always love the packaging rule because sometimes you've got your creatives that are, want these wild, crazy things that, that are beautiful, absolutely beautiful, but they may not be very manufacturable or they may not be very runnable. So if, if you're on a production line, you probably want a hockey puck. You want something short, round, and that, that can go fast. Um, you, you want something space age if you're in the creative side. And what you need to do is, is bring those two together and get the, get, get, the, get the design elements that are important to consumers, yet affordable, functional, can run on in, in a manufacturing plant. And, and so yeah. the, 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 the functions really vary. I mean, it's, there's a lot of design up front, but we try to bring the engineering and manufacturing folks in at least conceptually so that they can weigh in, but it could be procurement. It, it, it's often legal, it's marketing, it's uh, sales, um, pr you know, product development. The, the other R and D functions are important, but we go, we go all the way from front end through e even downstream logistics and waste management and things like that. That's fascinating. It truly is a company wide effort to go through kind of a new introduction. Um, you know, taking a step back, how has the pace of change um, evolved during your time in packaging and product development? It's it's changed partly. Some sometimes it's the industry, but I don't care what industry. And in, the, the 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 pace of changes is, is uh, has increased. I'd say the number of projects, the the speed at which we're trying to get there. Um, we have more tools than we used to have with simulation and design and maybe more calculated or measured risk uh, is accepted. And we try to learn and if it's, if it's close enough to a, a, an earlier iteration, often we can convince ourselves that, you know what, th this should act very similarly to something that we've done. We don't need, instead of, hundred steps, let's do these 20 and we, we believe it'll be okay. Now, obviously if it doesn't work out, it, it doesn't, but, but it does uh, force on a cross-functional basis for us to really evaluate it and see what is absolutely needed and appropriate for this particular thing. You can't compromise safety. You can't compromise a lot of things, but, but hopefully you can uh, find ways to, to, to uh, you know, tweak and accelerate it as best you can. Yeah, absolutely. And how have you seen the role of packaging professionals change? I mean, when I think about, I was just at Michigan State, we just, they just re, you know, opened the, mm -hmm. the new packaging building, Specrate. Um, we were able to be part of, uh, you know, renovating their computer lab. When I think about the role of packaging, 20 years ago was very much a support function. You know, the, the R&D people would come up with an idea, they'd figure out how to make it, and then, then they asked the packaging team to figure out how to ship it. Uh, how has that changed, and what is the role of packaging today on a more um, existential basis? I think for, for those in the, in the packaging uh, field, you've got to force yourself into those conversations early. In some companies, it might be more 
well known what packaging does and respected it in, in a key part. Other companies, maybe not so. If, if, if you happen to work for one of those companies where it's not so top of mind, you've got to find a way to get in because if it's, it's either pay me now or pay me later. And, and you don't want to come in late in a project where timelines have been established and you're, you're the bad guy because it, it's impossible to deliver what, what needs to be done. So, so anything that, you know, understanding what the product is, where the, product protection needs going to be, what forms of distribution is going to take. The, the thing that's, uh, you know, somewhat disruptive now is, is a lot of traditionally the CPG companies designed for regular uh, full pallet distribution. And now the trend is to e-commerce. So we're selling about 20, between 20, 25% of our products are sold e-com, but our lines are not set up for, for e-com packaging. So it's either, you take a chance and you send your retail packaging out there that's meant to be in a full pallet in a truck and protected and, and live with the damage rates or you, uh, you, you actually pack it off as if it's going to go to a grocery store and you unwrap it and repack it into an e-commerce pack, which is extremely expensive and inefficient. Yeah. It really is amazing how packaging is, is an integral part in building these business cases. Because like you said, you know, you can go to the, the business leader and say, we're either going to have higher damage rates because we're going to use the same packaging for everything. And there's, there's benefits of scale in that, right. Of not changing certain things, or we, we change packaging and might impact how we manufacture it. Um, but we get lower damage rates. So would you say that packaging now has to take more of a lens of business and kind of speaking the language of business than maybe it did 20 years ago when it was more of an engineering function? Yeah, definitely. If you, I mean, companies are, they, they want to know what the, what the return investment is going to be. So you get return investment by a, a creative new pack that consumers want because it's, it's meeting some sort of unmet need. Those are home runs. Those don't come around that often. A lot of times it's things like you, you examples that you brought up where, Hey, if we make this change, this will, it's going to cost us X amount of money up front, but we're going to save because we're going to generate less damage, well, better sustainability. But you know, so you, you've got to make a business case out of these because companies run on business-based decisions. So yeah, you, need I love to, that. you need to be able to speak the language of the finance. I mean, you, so you're, you're talking to finance, you're talking to CEOs, you're talking to, uh, you know, executives. It's an exciting time to be in the industry, I think, for, for both products and packaging and especially uh, packaging. You know, we've had a lot of folks on here from that background, and it truly is amazing to see the impact you are having on products that we use every day. And, and we're really grateful for that. Um, we're going to close it out right now with my favorite segment, which is some rapid fire questions. Uh -oh. uh, what's your favorite product right now? Product that I make or... or it can be anything. It can be a product you make, a product you use personally, whatever, whatever you want to go with. My favorite product is, you know, this is such a niche thing, but we make a human milk fortifier that, that uh, is added to breast milk to feed premature infants in hospitals. So you talk about these one and two pound babies, they cannot survive on mother's milk, but you want the, the benefits of mother's milk but you want to be able to supplement it with, with the, the nutrition that they need to, to grow and thrive. So there's babies living now that 20 years ago would not have survived. That's pretty amazing. You must feel like, I imagine you go to work feeling very like oh, yeah. a great sense of purpose and fulfillment. Absolutely. Oh, I love that. 
Um, what's the packaging trend that you're most excited about right now? I think it's, uh, well, I think sustainability might actually be real this time. You know, there's been multiple times over my career, because I'm, I'm later in my career, where the environmental things and, and, and uh, sustainability becomes a, a hot topic, but then it seems to fade. It, it gets hot, then it, then it fades. This time, it, it feels real. It feels real. And, and you know, I, I, I don't know how many listeners might be uh, naysayers on uh, global warming, but uh, I do believe that, that we have a responsibility to try to do what we can and uh, packaging can play a, a big role in that. So, so that to me is a, is something that, that I think is important and it's going to be more and more focused for more and more companies. Why do you think it's real this time? I, I feel the same way, by the way. I, you know, it, the, it, it's sticking. It, 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 it's, it's, it's actually getting louder and louder. Um, in, in the past, it seems like it was hot for a year maybe two years and then, then it would just tend to fade and sometimes driven by regulations, maybe sometimes by a, a, a retailer requirement. I think if you look at most of the major corporations out there, they have sustainability goals. I mean, we've got, we've got energy, water, greenhouse gas emissions, and we've got packaging um, objectives for sustainability uh, that, that we're, that we're very much trying to track to. And, and yeah. lots of other companies are too. No, I think you're spot on. I, you know, I've been studying a lot of the sustainability regulations and, you know, I look down the uh, down the road, the SEC climate disclosures more, you know, every country in Europe having their own. It, it's not it's also just becoming more complex. Mm -hmm. So I think comp companies are realizing that they have to they can't bandaid it anymore. They really need um, strategies that they can use to evolve and meet sustainability regulations. You know, I think people in medical, medical uh, and, and pharmaceuticals are well positioned because they already have to deal with high amounts of regulation. Mm -hmm. um, so it's something that they're familiar with, but I think for a lot of other companies, um, we're gonna continue to see that pick up. Yeah. Now, this is my last, um, my last rapid fire. It's called Kill, Keep, Change. We will give you a list of three random products. What would you kill, AKA discontinue? What would you keep as is? And what would you change? So uh, the three things I have for you, um, sunglasses. So it's almost summer here in Southern California. So sunglasses, cheese, and contact lenses. What would you kill? What would you keep? What would you change? Wow, that's, that's interesting. That, that, that's interesting. I'm just gonna pick some at random here. Uh, I'd probably kill contact lenses. People could wear glasses. Um, I would uh, keep my cheese because I think uh, cheese is a a wonderful product. Uh, and then I would I would probably change sunglasses, try to make them either lighter weight, uh, better UV blocking, um, you know, whatever you need to make them stylish, uh, light weighting, and, and effective. I love that cheese. Keeping cheese as is was the correct answer, by the way. And usually I don't have an opinion on these, but I, I do think it is the perhaps the most perfect food. Uh, Thomas, thank you so much for joining us. Um, how can people follow you and what you're doing? Well, you can uh, reach out to me on LinkedIn if you'd like. Um, be happy to communicate with anyone who, who's interested. Uh, love the packaging industry and, and have had a, just a, a I mean, I've been blessed by, by having such a nice career and, and uh, met lots of people, gone to lots of places. I'm in Amsterdam right now. I actually flew all last night and got to Amsterdam. I'm gonna go, we've got a 
the uh, company sustainability packaging uh, conference, and then I'm going to hit Interpac on Thursday. Wow. I love that. Live from, from Amsterdam. Well, thank you so much for joining us. If you liked this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Uh, Thomas, thank you so much. We appreciate you joining us. Hey, thanks, Laura. I enjoyed it. Beyond the Shelf is presented by Specrite, the first cloud-based platform for specification management. Say goodbye to spreadsheets, share drives, and legacy systems, and digitize your specs in a secure single source of truth. With Specrite, you can easily share and collaborate on specs with other departments and across your entire supply chain network. Taking a spec-first approach enables you to accelerate product and packaging development, go to bid faster, report on sustainability, and ultimately spend less time chasing data and more time making amazing things. To learn more, visit specrite.com. That's S-P-E-C-R-I-G-H-T.com.